Hey everybody, and welcome to the Vulnerable Entrepreneurs, coming at you from the great city of Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm Sean Riley. And I'm Kamen Thrath. And today, like always, we're having a no bullshit conversation about the entrepreneurial way of life. Today, I'm very excited to have a special guest with us and a good friend of mine, John Gleason. John owns four supporting strategies franchises in Massachusetts and began with supporting strategies in 2015. They help small and medium-sized businesses with bookkeeping and accounting. But what we really want to uncover today is understanding his mindset and his fears and his emotions of you know, what makes him tick as a serial entrepreneur who's been doing this for over 30 years. John, welcome. Thanks for having me, Calm uh, and, and uh, Sean. I'm really excited to be here with you today. John, it's an interesting, you know, to talk about being an entrepreneur for 30 years, I, I think that's, well, first of all, congratulations. I think that's that's really cool. Thank you, I guess. I guess. <laughs> but there has to be some kind of fundamental, as I said, I call it wiring, but some fundamental traits that you look at within your own personality that you can say, yeah, I've, I've done this for 30 years and I've done this multiple times, right? You're on your fourth or fifth startup now or, or your own company, right? Right. So what is it that, you know, if you can look back and say, this is kind of what drives me or gives me that, that we don't like to use motivation here, but we'll say determination. What what's makes you wired to do this every day and to keep doing it every day? 30 years is commendable. Well, I, I have to, uh, just to give you my opinion on it is I think it's personality driven. I think that you have to be someone who is interested in a challenge, but also someone who is probably afraid of being bored long term. Interesting. Um, I've always been interested in meeting a lot of different people and working in different areas of business. I really, you know, I'm very thrilled to be working in the small business community. I, I enjoy um, meeting small business people. But at the same time, I'm kind of terrified of, at this point in time, working in like a cubicle farm. I, I think I'd go insane. Or if I had to travel indefinitely for corporate America every week, which I did for a very short period of time, I wouldn't want to do that any longer. So I think I have like the ideal job. It is challenging. You do have uh, the opportunity to repeat the process when you're a serial entrepreneur, and you do have a lot of failures. But you have to kind of recognize that failure doesn't define you, right? You know that you're going to fail at some point in time. So you have to realize that I'm in the middle of a failure. <laughs> I'm going to get up eight times if I fall down seven. And um, But I, I think in, in answer to your general question, I think it is certainly personality driven. Not everybody wants to do what I want to do, um, but I do enjoy it. I think that's fascinating. I think that you bring up a great point you're more afraid of working a nine to five job in a cubicle, which many would argue safe, secure. You have a lot of responsibility, but you don't have all the responsibility. You're less, you're more afraid of that than you are of actually starting and running I, I really your am. own company. And I, I think that is telling. That it's, is it's, absolutely brilliant. I, I really am. I, I had to recognize that in myself that, um, you know, I had the opportunity and I think, you know, a lot of us do, everybody does. You know, to kind of run towards security. Maybe I'm going to go to work for the MBTA or right. <laughs> work for the state or whatever. And I, I just, I can't do it. You know, it's not something that I want to do, you know, so. Uh, I think that's, I think that is, like you say, a trait that we as entrepreneurs almost have to have. 
in a way. When you talk a little bit about about uh, failure, what do you think it is that gives you the ability to either look past it or minimize it? Or a, a lot of entrepreneurs or wannabe entrepreneurs that we talk to, they view failure as an end state. I didn't do this. You know, you take a sports analogy. I didn't win the gold medal, so I'm done. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm quitting. How do you make yourself look at failure as not an end state, as really a, a peeling back of the onion almost and getting you to a truer vision of what you want to do? That's the way I look at failure. It's, it's a cleaning out of what we're trying to do and making it cleaner. So, Sean, I did have a couple of wins, too. Um, <laughs> we'll get to the wins just, in a second. <laughs> I, just, I just want to preface this by telling you that I did win a few times. But in, in uh, honestly, I think that it has to do with uh, trying – what I call it now is stacking Ws. And what I mean by that is trying to um, recognize all of the small wins. And eventually those small wins are going to add up to larger and larger wins. Um, with, with me in particular, my – my personality is such that in the in my past professional life, I have been too trusting at times of uh, people who have told me they're going to do certain things oh, and yeah. they did not do those yeah. things because I was on to the next part of the project. Right. And I would look back and said, wait a minute, I thought you, you know, I thought, Bob, you were going to do this. <laughs> and that um, that was my fault. You know, that was a weakness that I've recognized in myself that I've been too trusting sometimes. And um, that has that has led to some interim failures, or perhaps I get involved with a uh, with a the business that I, I mentioned to you guys the other day when we talked about this uh, this interview today, and that was uh, a business that I was involved in that uh, sold antiques, and it was a it was a pretty good sized retail operation. I invested as a um, a silent partner, but I was uh, smart enough to anticipate that I might need an employment agreement from the operator. So I got an employment agreement from the operator and we had a 5,000 square foot store. We were selling, um, you know, dozens of items every day uh, on the internet, on eBay. And it was just, I, I was too trusting of that person, but also I didn't investigate that business enough. I, did, I wasn't from that world. I wasn't from retail. My background is commercial printing. And it was just, you know, it was just a mistake. I got enthusiastic in a couple of meetings and said, yeah, let's go. <laughs> That's kind of my personality. Let's give it a try rather than doing the research and the due diligence on it that I should have done. So, um, so the reason I bring that up is at this point in my career, 30 years into being an entrepreneur, what I try to do is learn from my mistakes. And I, I seriously do. I think about them on a regular basis. And every day, you know, I get up and say, you know, yesterday wasn't such a great day. You know, we, we did have a minor failure. This is what happened. But, you know, failure doesn't doesn't define you. We're heading towards a, a greater goal. And, you know, persistence is important. You know, not the smartest guy. Not the, I'm not the sharpest tool in the tool set. However, I'm very persistent and I'm very diligent. And I think that helps being an entrepreneur. <clears throat> when we talk a little bit about failure, but also success too, you have to, and because you're uh, an entrepreneur several times, you have, you separate the success and the failure of the business from yourself. In other words, if your confidence was tied to the success of your business, you could arguably still be in it because it, it becomes, as I said, an end state. You're, I'm, I'm successful. I'm tied to this business. I'm not going to do something else. But you and, and we and many entrepreneurs, 
there's always a higher purpose that we have. And it's not tied to a business. It's tied to whatever that purpose might be. So how do you separate yourself from the business? That's a very intuitive uh, question. Uh, very, very intuitive. And it, it follows my mindset very much so. Um, when I refer back to the biggest failure I ever had in business was in that retail operation that I mentioned. And you notice that I talk about, well, we were competing with eBay. It, and I, I don't blame that on myself. I blame some of my actions. Sure. It doesn't make me a bad person. My actions were incorrect, so I need to correct those. So even with current team members now, if they make a mistake, I talk about the mistake that they made itself. I don't belittle them. I don't say, right. you know, you're a bad person. I just say that action, that activity, that behavior was incorrect. So I need to be my own best friend as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, and say to myself, listen, when you perform those actions, John, they were, they were not good behaviors. That was a mistake. Right. And um, for example, you know, investing in a business that you hadn't done due diligence on. You know, um, I did know one of the partners, uh, but I had not worked with him all that closely. And anyways, so I make that part of my uh, protocol going forward that I'm not going to repeat that. So one of the reasons that I'm with my current enterprise at Supporting Strategies is that I, I'm in love with the business model. Right. And, you know, I separate that from myself. I came from a capital intensive business. I was in commercial printing for over 20 years. Very capital intensive. I'm no longer in in love with that particular business model for, for many reasons and their accounting related reasons. So um, you raise a very good point. You know, you, you need to separate the people from the business and the personalities from the business and the model because they have to, the model has to be analyzed separately and, and without emotion. And anytime you start to analyze a person as a human being, you can't help but be emotional, you know? So it's, there's emotion attached with that. What were some of the emotions you were going through on the tail end of realizing that, you know, that that retail business was starting to fail? Mm -hmm. Like, can you can you describe like a, a, a point on that that part of your life and like what was the emotion feeling like for you? And then how did you? So that was about get to the next phase? that was about seventeen years ago, and um, I, you know, I still remember it on a day-to-day on -day basis, but what it was all about at that point in time was I was trying to cut my losses, liquidate the business, which we did. We did not go any, any form of bankruptcy. We didn't um, beat any of the um, folks that we owed money. Everybody got paid. <clears throat> but I was very disappointed. But I, I'll tell you very honestly, I was already thinking about what else I was going to do going forward because I was a silent partner. I was working elsewhere at the same time. Um, but I was really disappointed, but I was... I was researching why this was failing, you know, and, and, I, and I had to recognize what mistakes I was making or I had made. And um, one of the things that I did do was I, I had some, as I do today, I, I had some very good people in my circle who were friends and business colleagues. And I just said, what did I do wrong here? And none of them hesitated to tell me, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were, you know, because they knew why I was asking. So I went to my colleagues that, that I worked with or I had worked with in the past. And I said, what did I do wrong with when I, you know, I partnered with so-and-so? And they kind of pointed out to me what I already knew, but what I wasn't ready to consciously uh, face yet. So that's one of the things I was going through. And, and honestly, about a year later, I was okay. It only took about a year. 
but it, 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 it's, as, as you can tell, it's still fresh in my mind. It was 17 years ago. I'm not going to repeat that mistake again. <clears throat> That's interesting. <laughs> Where do you get your self-confidence from? Um, <clears throat> it's all fear-driven. My self-confidence is um, I'm an extroverted introvert. Um, if you had asked me at 15 years old if I would ever sell a product or a service, I would have told you no way <laughs> possible. I'm going to go into the military for a career. I come from a military family. But um, you do get more confident over time as you accomplish goals, right? And you recognize those goals. You say, wow, I, I did do this. But at the same time, there's a danger. And the danger is that you become overconfident. You know, so I think you have to, um, you do have to push yourself and you have to stretch yourself and you have to get into situations that make you uncomfortable because that's how you grow, right? So I have to kind of compare myself to myself as a 25-year-old guy. There was a lot of things that I did then that I would never do again um, in terms of business and in terms of, um, you know, engaging, engaging in different uh, business activities that I don't, I don't think are necessarily um, the way to go now. Of course, business has changed. So I, I think my confidence, what little I have, uh, comes from, you know, recognizing the accomplishments that I've had and, um, you know, also from bouncing ideas off of colleagues and stuff and, and, uh, and, and folks that I work with within our, our uh, franchise network at Supporting Strategies. It's interesting because you use fear as a as a determining factor, as a, as a dare I say, a motivator. It gives you the ability to kind of keep going as opposed to what we were just talking about earlier where a lot of people say, well, I, I failed, that's it, I'm out, I have to do something else. Or they might have failed three times. They might say, you know what, if I fail three times, that's it. Or, or, or sometimes other people... Right. If it's a significant other or someone else or even a business partner or someone supporting you or advisor might say, look, let's give this another try. And you, know, you might in your mind say, OK, if, if I fail five times, is that it? Does that does that mean I'm not an entrepreneur? I, I'm not good enough. You know, how do you how do you keep driving forward? Is there you know, if do you feel like you know, for those listening, John, right? Like, is there a number? You know, th does someone have self-doubt to say I should stop doing what I'm what I want to do? You know, I'm fortunate. I, I don't doubt that I can run a small business because um, I have done it before. Um, do I doubt myself sometimes every single day? You know, but at the same time, you've got to kind of look at what you're doing on a macro basis and a micro basis. So that's what I mean by stacking W's. You know, on a micro basis, you know, you're on time for your meetings. You're meeting with the right people. You're analyzing your activities. Should I continue to do it this way? On a macro basis, you know, what are you heading towards in terms of what do you want your gross revenues to be at the end of this quarter, this year? You know, did I make my did I make my numbers last year? Not only gross revenues, but, you know, what were your gross profit, your net profit numbers? Am I um, adding enough business contacts to my CRM? You know, I'm, in other words, I, I, I'm a lot about metrics. Probably not surprising because I was, uh, you know, I was the CFO of a printing company for 15 years, and, and I sold it to a private equity group, and now I'm working the, in the bookkeeping and accounting services world. So sometimes when I have that self-doubt, I go back to the metrics and say, well, where are we? Where are we really in terms of black and white numbers? Are we okay? You know, do we have the operating capital we need to, you know, work on this new uh, marketing campaign? And that kind of, um, for a lot of financial people, 
that resonates and you say, okay, you're okay. <laughs> yeah, there was some self-doubt there, but you're actually doing all right. You know, because you do get fired by clients, you know, and you do have uh, rejection and, it's, and you do have, uh, you know, small failures. And then you just have to kind of analyze them and say, it's not a personal thing, it's a business thing. And, it, and you hear that all the time, but it, it, it's, it's a reality, right? You know, sometimes a client is firing you because you know, they've decided to hire a family member or they've, they've decided that they're going to look at their accounting services differently or what have you. And you, you have to uh, not necessarily internalize that. You have to kind of say, oh, that would have happened to anyone, you know, not just me. You know, you know one of the – what I'm grateful for in having you join us today is the fact that you're, you are an entrepreneur yourself and, and you've started a few different businesses. But the niche that you're in now is small – to medium businesses. So I would imagine you have a pretty intimate relationship with a lot of either the founders or the heads of those businesses. Talk a little bit about what are some of the the trends. If you could look up across your portfolio of clients now, what are some of the trends, both good and bad, that you see? What are some of the things that you look at as an entrepreneur and say, yeah, he, he's going through what I went through 10 years ago? Okay, I'll start with the bad. I think that on the bad side, there are an awful lot of businesses out there who have seen nothing but growth for 10 years. And they've just seen nothing but blue sky and, and, yeah, and increased profits. I can do no wrong. You know, still have no budget. You know, still have no controls in place. Have wanton spending. You know, maybe, but they're still doing all right because, the you know, a rising tide raises all boats. Yeah. So I, as you know, a, a sales, uh, not a salesperson, but a business person who's been around a little bit had seen, you know, the market go in the opposite direction where that rising tide, you know, now we're at low tide. And even though you've, you've done well with your business, your customers have left. And um, so out there in the business marketplace, there's a lot of folks who have not lived through that, that type of a business cycle. So, you know, we're here to tell them, you know, you need to be more conservative. You need to plan for the future. Yes, you're growing at a certain pace. Um, on the other side of things, I think there's a lot of younger and younger business people uh, becoming involved in, in the businesses that we, we service and we help, and they, they bring technology with them and a, and a lack of fear of technology. And also, um, they're sometimes more creative than someone who has been in the same business for 35 years and, and has the attitude, well, this is the way we've always done it. Or, or they'll say, well, this is, this is how it's done. <laughs> And uh, so I enjoy working with uh, some of the younger generations who, who, you know, they'll they'll reinvent the wheel because maybe that's a better way to do things. And I I really enjoy working with the business folks that we get to interact with. It's one of the things I like best about my current position. Talk a little bit about you know starting a business and running a business, um, doing what we do every day. There's a certain amount of risk that's associated with that. There's obviously financial business risk. You know, you could break it down, customer risk, market risk, but it's all risk. You're, you're doing something to some degree without knowing fully what the end result could be. So talk a little bit about how you manage risk, how you look at risk, um, and even how you advise clients about risk. So there's also a lost opportunity cost risk. So if you go off and start a business, you could have been doing something else, you know, perhaps working for a large company with a, you know, a stable salary and, um, you know, benefits and so forth. So I go back to the business model and believing in the business idea. Do I believe in 
the services that we're providing? Do I believe that um, it still makes sense today to do what we're doing that we, we started doing five years ago? And I believe that even more so at this point in time. So yeah, there's always risk, but every business encompasses risk. Um, I do have a conversation with clients that we have now in prospects because they have the same thing on their minds, even if they're third generation and they're manufacturing pies, you know, they, they still feel it's a risk because they have to reinvest in, uh, you know, capital equipment and so forth to, to, uh, continue to serve their marketplace. So, um, for me, dealing with risk a lot of times goes back to the metrics and looking at does this business still make sense in this market and going forward, is it going to make sense? Because if it's not going to make sense, then I, get, I have to start thinking about what's the next business I want to be in or, you know, perhaps uh, changing the ownership role so it's not myself any longer. Perhaps it's going to be a different group of folks and I'm going to consult with them or what have you. I, you know, there's, there's different ways to uh, – to transition from a business. So I, when I do that, by the way, is I usually do that in November of every year. It's I kind of look at, okay, what are we going to do next year? Do we want the same business plan? And I want to know by like January 10th or 15th, you know, where I'm at. So it's, it's interesting when you talk about that because your, your purpose is the same, but you're flexible enough. You know that the buzzword now is pivot, but you're flexible enough to change, alter, create something else still within that business, still within that purpose. But you're being flexible and open to the fact that this might be great, but there could be better, or this isn't working, so we need to change it. And I think the general theme that we like to, to bring out is you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to yourself because you can say, I don't have all the answers. And we'll do another podcast about perfection, but nobody's perfect because that, that is an unattainable thing. But you're willing to look at your business and in your case, yearly and say, does this still work? You could have a banner year and say, does this still work? And from the sounds of things, you do it both from the ground up. Here's the numbers. Did we meet, exceed or fail? But also from the top down, am I still interested in doing this? Does, do I still love what I do? And be able to make <clears throat> changes, either, either minor or major, again, on a yearly basis. But more importantly, to be open or vulnerable to that process yourself. Sean, the reason that I started to look at an annual business plan for my own business every single year was probably because I sold businesses. I was in the low to mid market investment banking world for 12 years. So I met all different types of business owners. I really enjoyed that life too. That was, that was a fun career. But what I realized in meeting, I met hundreds of business owners. Uh, every one of them feels they're in a unique situation. They feel like you know their business is more valuable than what the market believes the business is worth. And I know that you've run into that and Com has run into that. But I realized after meeting with enough of them, you know, scores of them, that the folks that were doing best were the ones that were actually analyzing the ongoing business and separating the emotion from the metrics and saying, okay, how is my team really performing? You know, whether it was their family or hired partners or whatever it was, how are we really doing? And do we really look at quarterly and annual numbers, even when we're a small business? So. Um, that's when I started that discipline and it's, it's been working really well and it, and it fits in well with my current environment because 
because we're in accounting and bookkeeping, we look at the metrics. We use a software called Fathom HQ, which is a kind of a roll-up software so that we can compare metrics of all the franchises across the United States, but we can also look at the KPIs for our own franchise in great detail. And I've had I've had business colleagues of mine who said, "Well, why would you do that? I mean, you're you're not that large a business. You know, you're not Procter and Gamble. You're not Colgate. It's because if you don't measure something, you you can't improve it. So you you, you, you can only improve what you measure. Right. You know, you so that's very important. So that's again why we look at things every year because we're 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 looking back at the previous year and we're planning the next year. And it's if you're a business person, it's really kind of what you should do." As you're planning stuff for yourself this year, John, right? Like you're making calculated guess, but they're they're limiting, I think, risk factors because you're looking at metrics, you have historical data because you're a numbers guy, but there's other things that are untangible you can't predict, right? Because again, you can't know anything as an entrepreneur, know, know it all and, and predict it all. Like what are some of like, either some risks that you feel you're taking, you know, and I put risks in different buckets. It, is the risk like, Letting down folks that you know, letting down mentors or family members, is the risk mm-hmm. like losing money, some type of monetary thing? Is the risk, you know, your reputation or, or your business's reputation? You know, what do you feel are, are are certain buckets that kind of come bubble to the top more for you from a risk standpoint? So I think, um, you know, risk is is tied to fear. Um, I think that, like my current risk is that you know we are. We are handed the financial keys to the kingdom for our clients in many instances. So we're helping them control the outbound revenues from their their treasury and inbound revenues, right? We're helping them pay bills. We're helping them collect money. We're helping them operate in a more secure manner. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we're always concerned about is, is uh, hackers, right? You know, cyber fraud, folks that are trying to get into, um, you know, our cloud-based secure um, proprietary environment so that they can take advantage of us. You know, to me, that's, if you're asking me what keeps me up at night, that does keep me up at night. I have all kinds of cyber fraud insurance and ransomware and, and we use Office 365 and we use SharePoint and we use endpoint security and we have internal IT security. So those are things that scare me and there's some risk there. In a previous lifetime, when I was a commercial printer and we had built the company up to around $14 million in revenues. We did marketing uh, collateral for mutual fund companies in the Boston area. So we worked for Scudder Funds, one of our best clients, uh, State Street Global Research, Putnam. We were a Fidelity vendor. I also did work for the medical device industry. I did work for Johnson & Johnson down in New Brunswick, New Jersey. So the risk there was, you know, they get a new CFO at J&J or somebody's looking at the budget and they decide that, oh, we don't we don't need this New England printer. You know, you could lose a million dollars in revenue because somebody decided that. Sure, well, name change, right? Just a name change. Yeah. There was just a change in, in the leadership there. Yeah. One of the reasons that I like our model is that we're not so heavily concentrated, right? So at, you know, at any given time when I, when I was at Bay State Press, I was one of the the founders and I was the co-founder and treasurer of the company it was I actually funded the company's start um, you know we did have clients that would do a million dollars worth of volume with a year so we're in a different environment now and again it's because the business model is different so we have different risks at that point in time I wasn't you know back back in the day 20 years ago I wasn't worried about cyber fraud and ransomware right. and so, forth. Mm-hmm. so the reason I bring this up is every couple of years is a little bit different what you're worried about 
you, you're always worried about not letting your family down. But I'm, I've been married over 30 years. You know, my wife trusts, you know, my my business decision making. She, you know, I almost never come home and she says, why did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> That's a win. But, right? um, I, you know, I have worked for corporate America three different times, you know, where I was on salary plus commission type of deal, really good benefits and so forth. And there was at least a couple of times when she said to me prematurely, you know, you're going to start another business now, aren't you? <laughs> and um, and the, the last time she said it to me, I said, yeah, I'm going to have to because the company I was working for sold and they changed our comp plan. And and I said, you know, I, you know, I don't mind doing it again. I'll jump out and do it again. And I've been a- actually a lot happier. So I guess the risks change and the fe- you know the fear change. You're, you're afraid of different things at different times. I've never had a layoff here at Supporting Strategies, which is great. Um, at Bay State Press, my own Bay State Press, there were times when I had to lay people off, and I felt really bad about that. You know, we had at, at the crest we had about 130 people. So when you you know you have to lay off 25 people, you know you're affecting their mortgage, you know their their grocery money, their whole, and then you have to call them back. And it's a whole different ball game, but that was something I was very fearful about, you know, so, um, and we did everything in our power to, um, because we were dealing with very big corporations, right? We did everything in our power to please them, but sometimes it's, you know, it was just unpredictable whether they would stay with you or not. And there were a lot of competitors out there that we were dealing with. One of the the things that we talk about and struggle with is there's this idea of work-life balance, which I personally believe is a myth because you are setting yourself up for failure if you have work priorities and personal priorities, which one wins out. So really it's life, right? But along that same vein, how do you manage that? How do you, you nobody can make time. Everybody says, oh, I can't make time for that. Well, right, because nobody can. But how do you make priority? How do you look at your day or your month your business and your home life and say, okay, these are the things I want to focus on. Or do you? How does it work for you? So I, I too think that that is a myth. The work-life balance is, is it's a nice myth. You know, it'd be nice. Sounds to, great. It yeah. sounds great. It'd be great to achieve it. Um, I'm fortunate to have uh, been, as I mentioned earlier, I've been married a long time at this point in time. And my, my two kids are adults. Uh, they're, they're both teaching on the college level, but they remember their dad when I did not have a lot of control over, uh, I, I don't want to say I was a pure a workaholic, but there were times when I would unfortunately put work ahead of the family, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs do that. And I did that for a long period of time. However, <laughs> when I started selling businesses, and I'll, I'll explain how this relates, I had more flexibility in my schedule. I wasn't working for corporate America. I was working for a small investment bank, and I coached sports for 11 years, and I would never change that. Um, it probably affected my career as a, an investment banker, but I would never change it. I was worth it. So you have to kind of look at weighing the positives and the negatives. Is this going to be worth it against what I'm doing over here? The other thing is when I get involved in supporting strategies, I told my wife, you know, to start up again, you know, for probably three to five years, <laughs> it's going to be very hard, you know, and, um, and she recognizes that because now she's a veteran. <laughs> you know, and, and she's like, you know, I know. And like a lot of times I'm certainly not home usually before 7 p.m. at night now. And I get up every day at 530. I do a lot of networking early in the morning. So my point is it has to do with your family and them being uh, understanding and receptive of your, your demands on your schedule. That being said, if my wife tells me she really needs me, that I make that happen. <laughs> you know, we, we and we have a family event that's very important. I now make that happen because I know that's a priority. But 
we are wired differently, entrepreneurs. You know, there are things that, I, you know, we talked earlier before uh, this podcast about a 40-hour week, which I think is also a myth today. Um, there is no 40-hour week anymore. You know, if you're full-time, you're really full-time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're all the time. If you're full-time, you're all the time. So uh, for me personally, what it gets down to is communication with my family. You know, and in, in my case, you know, my kids are out of the house now. So it's really, you know, my, my wife and myself. And I, and I tell her, you know, if this is really important to you, we'll make that happen. And she really understands. But very honestly, in the first 15, 20 years of our marriage, that was not the case. I was probably too dedicated towards work. And, and, it, and it did have a, uh, a negative effect on our relationship, I think. And um, I think it's unfortunately, it's a common story with entrepreneurs. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I want to add to that a little bit because I remember when I started I mean, I've, I've been an entrepreneur, say, about seven years, but I remember the first two, three, four years, like you're, there's an excitement into it. You just put everything into it. But you also, it's not just about the business. You're, the vision that I have, and I'm sure you had too, John, was like, I'm doing this not just for myself, but for my family and everything else, right? So, but I think I had to, like, this this come to Jesus conversation with my wife, I believe, maybe three or four years into it. She's like, look. You have some people now. You have all the people to lean on. You you can you can get off the pedal a little bit. And I'm like me, get off the pedal. Like you know me. Like really, but you have to have real conversations. That communication is important. The 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 expectations part is really important. With you know, uh, if it's with your family member, mm -hmm. to say okay, you know, if I do this, I'll do this through. So so one promise. The promises I made to her was, at five o'clock, you know, or four five thirty, whenever that is, I turn it off. Do not touch my phone. I'm here for the family. You know, after everyone's in bed, she's like, that's fine. Jump on the laptop, come, you know, knock yourself out. You want to work until one, two, three in the morning, it's up to you. Yeah. I mean, I don't do that uh, every day. I, I used to in the beginning, but I think you start to create, um, you know, like you said, Sean, you're never off, right? So like, yeah, I'm still on. If the kids are watching cartoons on Saturday, yeah, I'm, re I'm answering some emails or checking Slack and I'm, I'm doing some stuff because if I'm sitting on a couch, I'm multitasking the best I can, but I don't do it too much because I want to be present. I still want to be present for yeah. my family. Yes. So I, I think, you know, very you, you got to have that conversation it's, with, you know, you have you, to have that conversation yeah. with those around you that are yeah. important to you. I think too, you, I think also you have to have the conversation with yourself. How much of, you know, how much of what we do, we like to think is, is working or promoting our business, but, but really if you look at it, it's like, well, yeah, I can, you know, oh, I spent all day answering emails. Okay, that's great. But how much of those emails did you really have to? And as we talk about, if you can smash together the business and the personal and realize you have one life, suddenly the things in business that you thought critical that you had to get done because they're not that important anymore. I, I love people that say, well, you know, I don't have time for my family I work, you know, 80 hours a week. And, and I sit there and I say, I think personally spending time with your family or, or anybody in your life personally helps you become a better worker. But also you're arguing that your 80th hour of work is as productive as your first hour, which we know that isn't true. I would say you're a better worker if you get, get eight hours of sleep, coming from someone who absolutely does not sleep eight hours in full transparency. But I think if you can, you coach your kids, I think you are a better employee, not not a worse one. And the reason why I say that is everybody needs a disconnection. You know, a doctor or a surgeon doesn't go from one surgery to the next to the next. A truck driver doesn't drive from point A to point B if it's 20 hours away. They have to stop and reset 
and and take a step back. And I think that by taking those those competing priorities and actually making them a whole life, a whole priority, it's so much easier to manage. It's less pressure. If you know that you, A, have to quit at five, but you can spend all night long answering emails to your very own point, you don't do that because you don't need to, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it, 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 as entrepreneurs, we, we have a lot of pressure on us. A lot of it is the pressure we put on ourselves. 100%. And if you can hit that release valve every now and then, I think it, it makes you a better entrepreneur, not a, not a worse one. One of the things I've, I've done myself for a number of years now, um, it started when I had my staffing company, was I would go to the gym in the middle of the day. I would leave arguably at the most expensive and, and the busiest time of the day. And I forced myself to do it because, you know, being Irish, if I wake up in a bad mood, that's pretty much what you're going to get all day long. And I needed, a, I needed a place to go to get rid of the cobwebs or the stresses or the, you know, the stuff that we're talking about that staff or employees don't, A, know about and don't need to. And I would get colleagues of mine and other business owners would say, how can you go to the gym in the middle of the day? Like, what are you doing? You're gone for 90 minutes. And I said, I come back a better entrepreneur. I come back more There's focused. More energy, too. More energy. I feel better. The other thing that it does is – you say you have people that go, they have to get up in the morning early to go to the gym or they have to do it at night. Well, if you go at night, you're setting yourself up to fail because if if there's kids issues or something wrong with your wife or something comes up, now you have to make a choice. But I would rather do this, but I have to go to the gym. And if you blow off the gym, then you have a sense of failure. So being able to take a step back and look at time management a little bit differently, it's it's not a big is a big of a hit as it would be in, in the in the stereotypical you know work nine to five work out and then go home. It, you you look at it with a freer perspective. I think you're recognizing yourself and the well your own well being. You know, I agree. And improving it. So, John, as you can see, it really comes down to like staying focused, being productive, being determined. Tell us some tricks and like, you know, the mindset you get to. Like, how do you stay productive and focused and really just like get things done? In terms of motivating myself, one of the things that, that we do is we have a monthly managers meeting. It's in person. We talk about it in teams on Office 365 for a whole month before we actually meet. So there's a work in process document, right? So we're debating ideas until that very day. I get enthused about the actual meeting. We actually had one yesterday. So as an example, just real quickly, we grew 35% last year. So we talked about the we talked about the rule of 76. A couple of my colleagues didn't know what the rule of 76 is. So if you divide the growth rate into 76, that's how quickly you'll double your business. So that's how I'm trying to motivate other people and motivate myself. And, and it really did work yesterday. <laughs> I was very motivated about it. So as you can tell, I'm a metrics person. So I go back to that, you know, that bugaboo, the business plan. What's your business plan? How are you doing? And, within your business plan. So if you're if you're killing your business plan, that's self-motivating for me. If you're not, that's motivating me to find out why not <laughs> and to make the improvements to go forward. So I look at the business plan. I plan next week on Sunday afternoon. I plan next year on in November, the day after Thanksgiving. You know I do this because you and I have done a seminar yeah, on you it. you told me. You gave me and, um, of, uh, your, your magic. You know, and magic I, I kind of face the music myself with 
you know, how we're doing. So last year was a great year. I'm hoping to repeat that or come close to that. And, but let's get back to, to small stuff. Um, stacking W's, which means wins, right? Real small stuff. But like, if you have a week where you have to do six meetings and, you know, the six presentations you're meeting with uh, prospective clients and you kill it, you know you did well. Whether or not you, you sold them or not, you know that you killed the meetings, you showed up, you were prepared, you brought everything. That's going to pay off eventually. So you just stack those days and those weeks over and over and over again. And then in the long term, it's going to pay off. I just do it day by day. <laughs> how, do you, how do you plan your day? Like, like how do you know you look at your day, but how do you like plan your day? And as entrepreneurs, we're getting pulled in all different directions all the time. Tons of distractions. How do you like hyper folk? Like, especially today, right? I've never yeah. seen so many distractions mm -hmm. in my career as as we have in 2020. So, the way I plan my day, like everybody else, is I use a smartphone. You know, my calendar is my Bible, but I also plan my day using a uh, a desk size calendar. So I plan my month on that desk size calendar once a month. And I say, okay, because that gives me a better visual of what a day looks like. And I'll say, geez, you're out in Hadley, Mass. on Thursday, you know. And then I try to concentrate all of my activity in that area. I'm just making up a, a specific scenario. But because looking at your phone on a day-to-day -day basis doesn't give you enough visibility on your month or your week. So when I lay it out in a desk calendar, I look at the whole week, it gives me much better visibility and then I realize that I'm spending too much time driving around, which we call windshield time, or perhaps I'm not spending enough time in front of prospects. You know, maybe I'm doing too many podcasts. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just no, keep but, it to yeah. one. Just keep it to this So one. I only do your podcast, but <laughs> you know really, what I mean. You. you know, maybe thank I'm spending you. too much time on myself, you know, stuff that I, I like enjoy. That. So I So one thing that I have done is train myself to enjoy meeting prospective clients, which I do. I absolutely love it. A anyway, so... That's how I manage my day is I look at, okay, the metrics. How many prospective clients are you supposed to meet with next month? Six, that's not enough. <laughs> you know? So, and I see that on the desk calendar that I lay out every month. It's a discipline, you know, uh, but that's how I do it. For the folks that are listening, talk about what some of the takeaways are. If you're a, somebody that wants to get to the next level in, in their job or their career, or they're thinking about starting a business what are some of the takeaways from today that, that you so, have? So I actually have a 28-year-old son, and my daughter is 31. They're thinking of starting a business. So the takeaway I have for them is business plan, business plan, business plan. Do not get into a business unless you have a business plan. And it, can, it does not have to be as thick as, uh, you know, the, the Mormon Bible. It can be, you know, five pages, but you have to start with that outline. And as you can tell, I'm a metrics person. So you need to do um, – you know, I learned from a previous failure, right, that we talked about on this call, that you have to do your due diligence, you have to investigate, you have to do the research. It might be painful, but you owe it to yourself to do that research. So the takeaway that I have for you is, as a you know, beginning entrepreneur is create that business plan. Ask people that are smarter than you, that are more experienced than you in that vertical, and people will help you. You know, typically if you ask people for help, they'll help you. You know, how do I go about doing this? What's the What's the proper way to do this? Don't be bullheaded and decide that, you know, you're going to make all the right decisions on your own because there's other people who have already, um, you know, experienced life and have, you know, spent, you know, thousands of hours in that in that industry. And they, they probably have some very good ideas that you can uh, you can uh, analyze and decide whether or not you want to use them. So, John, you know, you're working on a lot of things. You know, tell us kind of what's next. What are you working on now and like how can people get a hold of you? So, oh, thank you. So 
I'm a managing director of Sporting Strategies North Shore, Metro West, Central, and Western Mass. So what we do is bookkeeping and staff accounting for small businesses that are looking to operate more profitably. And what I mean by that is we enable our clients to focus on their core business, their revenue and profit generating business, while we take care of their bookkeeping and their accounting. We don't pay their taxes, but we help them account for how they're doing in business. So we're actually monitoring their scorecard, right? Their balanced scorecard. The best way to get a hold of me is usually by email. So it's jgleason, G-L-E-A-S-O-N, at supportingstrategies.com. Or you're certainly welcome to call me. My phone number is 617-714-2085. We have offices in Needham, Massachusetts and Worcester, Massachusetts. And um, we service a, a pretty wide area. Boston's North Shore and then Boston's Metro West, Massachusetts Central Mass and Massachusetts Western Mass. And I thank you very much for having me on today. I appreciate it, guys. John Gleason, Managing Director, Supporting Strategies. Thanks so much for coming. We really appreciate it. guys. This is amazing. Thank you so much for really opening up to us, John, and to all our listeners. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. That wraps it up. You can find us on Facebook and LinkedIn at The Vulnerable Entrepreneurs, Twitter and Instagram at The VE Podcast, and join the conversation by visiting our website at thevepodcast.com. By all means, please email us at hello at thevepodcast.com. Thanks for listening today. We understand that every minute of your day is so valuable and precious and appreciate you sharing this time with us. And remember, whatever your 100% is, give it.